Coming up on Philosophy Talk. I think government health experts during this pandemic need to show caution in their prognostications. Why are so many people dunking on science these days? Virtually every day we seem to hear from you things we can't do. But when you're asked, can we go back to school? I don't hear much certitude at all. I hear, well, maybe it depends. When the truths of science are always shifting, should we still trust it? Sometimes you have to make extrapolations because you need to at least give some sort of recommendation. You can sort of see why if people have this idea that science is about truth, they're going to be taken aback when it turns out science is telling them a bunch of wrong stuff. Our guest is Anne Thresher, co-author of The Tangle of Science. Science isn't about truth, it's about reliability. And the reason science is reliable is partially because it's full of false theories. Why trust science? I am a scientist, not a philosopher! Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Coming soon, it's our annual Dionysus Awards. Join us as we celebrate the most thought-provoking movies of the past year. Send your nominations to comments at philosophytalk.org and tell us why your movie deserves a Dionysus Award. Is science just one error after another? Or is it the only way to arrive at the truth? If it isn't true, why does it work so well? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're asking, why trust science? Well, you know, that's a great question, Ray. I'm not sure we should. Really? How can you doubt the method that helps us build bridges and skyscrapers and formulate life-saving medicines and understand the cosmos? Do we understand the cosmos? Scientists have had a lot of theories. Most of them are wrong. I mean, astronomers used to think the sun revolved around the Earth. Doctors used to think leeches could cure disease. Well, yeah, Josh, but they don't think those things anymore. We prove them wrong with the scientific method. Sure, and, and look what scientists believe now. To, don't you think we might prove those things wrong, too, someday in the future? Yeah, fine, but we're guaranteed to reach the truth eventually. We just have to keep gathering evidence until we know which theory is right. I don't know. Gathering evidence isn't going to be enough. You also have to convince people, and that isn't always easy. Take Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a doctor in 19th century Vienna, and everyone around him thought that patients were dying because they had, like, an imbalance of, t of humors. Wait, imbalance of what? Exactly. And, and Semmelweis showed that washing your hands between patients was, guess what, a good way to keep them alive. Well, I guess that disproves the imbalance of humors theory. Well, you might think so, but his colleagues were not convinced. He just couldn't persuade them that disease is caused by these, you know, tiny blobs you can't see. And that's why science doesn't always make progress, right? You're always going to have one or two people who get it, and a whole bunch of people who refuse to face the facts. Well, of course, science isn't going to guarantee that everyone will believe the truth. It, it just guarantees that if people follow its methods, then they'll arrive at the truth. But that's already pretty cool, you know? It means that all we have to do is set aside our biases and be objective and use the scientific method. But, but Galileo used the scientific method, and, you know, he was wrong about all kinds of things. He thought the tides were caused by the Earth's rotation. You know, now we know they're, they're caused by the moon. Of course he was wrong about some things, but being wrong is a step on the way to being right. Scientists adopt theories and then subject them to rigorous tests. 
So if your theory fails the test, you stop believing it, and eventually the only theories left standing are going to be the true ones. What does it mean, though, to fail a test? I mean, I mean, if your data don't match your theory, that could just mean your telescope's broken or there's dust on the lens. Okay, I get that you have intellectual doubts, but when push comes to shove, you trust science just as much as I do. Look at you, talking away into that fancy radio microphone, confident that the radio waves are going to reach thousands of people. What kind of hypocrite are you anyway? The kind with the fancy microphone? <laughs> okay, but seriously, you have to admit, you rely on science all the time. All right, yeah, fair enough. I do depend on science a lot in my everyday life. Science works, I'll give you that. It just doesn't mean that it's true. Ah, I think you do trust science after all. Maybe, but I'm not sure I have good reason to. Ah, I give up. I, I hope our guest can convince you. It's Anne Thresher from Stanford co-author of the new book, The Tangle of Science. Thinking of trying to convince people about science, when it comes to topics like drug use, people don't always trust the research. They often let their politics get in the way. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to investigate how emotions can trump science when it comes to stopping drug users from overdosing. She files this report. Dr. Phil isn't a licensed doctor, but it's no surprise he has a lot of opinions on how the country should address addiction. He's not a fan of safe consumption sites where people can use drugs under medical supervision. Talking about you know safe places, safe havens, clean needles, it can be taken as an implicit endorsement that this is now safer, that it's okay. In this episode, he talked to Maya Solovitz, the author of Undoing Drugs. She says the data shows that syringe exchange programs are effective. People who participate in syringe exchange programs, in prescription heroin programs in Europe, are more likely to get into abstinence or other forms of recovery. But that argument does not persuade Dr. Phil. What is the exit strategy? And the answer is there isn't one. No, that's not true. No, it is true. There is not an exit strategy. Yes, there is. And of course, Dr. Phil is Dr. Phil. But he's not the only person who feels that way. Instead of punishing people who use drugs or forcing them to quit, harm reduction focuses on reducing the risks of drug use. Solovich says that philosophy saved her life. During the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, while addicted to heroin and cocaine, she met someone who had some advice. She told me, you know, um, I shouldn't share, but if I had to share, I should, you know, clean the works uh, twice with bleach and then twice with water. And she probably saved my life. In San Francisco, people stocked bleach in corner stores, bars, and taquerias. Advocates also distributed clean needles without permission from the government. The whole history of harm reduction in the United States and really internationally is first things are done illegally and underground, and then the sky doesn't fall. That's Rachel McLean. Back in the 1990s, she worked as an outreach worker in San Francisco when the city was seeing a wave of heroin overdoses. She was part of the push to distribute Narcan, the medication used to reverse overdoses. McLean still remembers the first time learning about a save. We call it a save when you give somebody naloxone and then they use it to like reverse somebody else's overdose. I can't even describe it, it was just such an incredible feeling of being like, we're doing it. Like, this is working, you know? We are giving people who use drugs the tool to save each other's lives. The results were promising. We're talking about 
and thousands of doses and many lives were saved. Joshua Bamberger, a professor of medicine at UCSF, was the only physician prescribing naloxone in San Francisco for many years. And the death toll from heroin overdoses plummeted from a peak of 155 in the mid-90s to 10 in 2010. Flash forward to today, fentanyl is killing people in record numbers. Just when the drug dealers come up with a new drug, we need to come up with a new response. I think it's our job as physicians to give people the tools so they don't come to greater harm from their addiction or their illness. First, do no harm, primum non necessary. Still, despite the overwhelming evidence that safe consumption saves lives, many political leaders are not persuaded. In 2022, California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a measure to create a pilot program for safe consumption sites, saying they could have unintended consequences. The law and order stance that many politicians have learned is a successful position to be in to get elected is not the stance that science supports. Bamberger says harm reduction is only controversial when it comes to substance use, perhaps because of our own fear of losing control. So some people might think, well, what's going to get me to do something? And the answer might be consequences. But those threats don't work for people living with addiction. I think that there's a lot of cultural misappropriation by taking more middle class values and projecting it onto drug users and assuming that that's going to fit. And instead of TV pseudo-doctors, we could look to real doctors who study addiction and their results. Since opening safe consumption sites in New York, hundreds of overdoses have been reversed. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly Timmick-Dean. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.